Impact of Influence, the tragic story of a powerful South Carolina family and the mysterious deaths that they are linked to. Hello, friend. Thanks for joining us. And uh, it's going to be a good episode. John Snyder will join us, our legal analyst, to break down some of the things that are going on. And he brings up some really interesting points and possibilities. Also, we'll be talking to our friend Sarah from Hampton, who will give us a little bit about uh, the history of the Palmetto State Bank and the Lafitte family's involvement. But we want to start with something we've been trying to avoid talking about, some things that have happened on social media and different Facebook groups, etc., that we've avoided because we know most of you could give a rat's butt about this, but we feel it's gotten to a point where we have to address it. And if you've gone to Murdoch Podcast Facebook page, I'll read the statement that we put up. It has come to our attention that has been written on social media that we have set up fake accounts to troll another podcaster and those who she works with and for. We categorically deny those baseless claims. We have contacted our attorney and these defamatory attacks continue. We will take appropriate action. Let's go right to the point. Seton, did you ever set up a fake social media account in order to harass or troll a podcaster or a podcaster friend or a coworker of the podcaster? No, absolutely not. I mean, I, I just have to kind of remember that these people don't know me. It's not my nature to do anything like this. And I think anyone who does know me knows that I would never do anything like this. Yes. And um, I know that you had like an iPhone 4 for forever. So your tech skills are very weak. And so are mine. I told my radio team that this was happening, and they all just burst out laughing at the thought I could set up a fake account. But we did not do that. Did you encourage anybody to troll anyone? No. And I find it crazy that people think that I, I could create a group of people to go out and do, I mean, again, my technical skills are not, are very limited. Right. So we have not done any of that. We don't encourage anybody to do that. We do this because we have a passion for the story, and we enjoy talking about all that's happening in this this Murdoch case. Yeah, that is the reason. We're definitely not for everyone. We're conversational and we we don't claim to be for everyone. We appreciate those who do listen and yes. You know, we actually take criticism and try to get better and improve and you know, that's we've we've said all along that we think the more coverage to the story, the better. The story shouldn't be about us. Mm-hmm. The more coverage the better and that you know, especially on a national level, stuff can't get swept under the rug. And so that's what we've maintained if you've listened to our podcast all along. Exactly. We, uh, I also want to say I've been media for 30-plus years. I'm only 35. Um, for 30-plus <laughs> years. And I have. it's always been reporters talking to each other from TV, radio people hanging out together. It's never been a confrontational situation, and it is not in our minds that way. So that's enough of that. Let's move on uh, to Russell Lafitte and Palmetto State Bank. There has been some pressure on them, and uh, people are wondering, especially the attorneys that are involved in this, what the bank's responsibility is as far as the actions of Russell Lafitte. Seton, what do you have on that? So Trenum Walker, who is legal counsel for the bank, has said that they may not be legally liable, but they would hope to accomplish restitution. So I think what he's saying is they're trying to negotiate some sort of settlement. Yes, and nothing's been paid yet. What has uh, Akeem Pinkney's attorney, Bamberg, said about this? Yeah, so Bamberg told Fitz News that he has not seen such efforts to accomplish full restitution. So I think they're disagreeing on what they consider full restitution. 
and we bring in our legal analyst, former district attorney and former defense attorney, John Snyder. Hey, John. Hey, guys. How you doing today? We're doing well. We've got a lot of things to talk to uh, about today with you, a lot of legal stuff. But uh, this seems like the obvious play by the attorney is to say the bank had some responsibility to oversee what their CEO was doing. Yes. I mean, the, the deepest pocket in the world is the one that's holding everyone's money. So in a from a plaintiff's attorney standpoint, if you have a bank that's a possible tort feeser, you're going to look at them to to provide as much of the claim as possible since they're good for the money, if you will. It's going to be one of those situations where it's going to come down probably to some sort of settlement, wouldn't you think? I would think it'd be a settlement. Two ways it'll happen. It'll, it'll be a settlement or it'll be a regulator coming in. A regulator could come in and say, hey, we've gotten this complaint. We want to look at your practices and the way that you handled deposits at your bank. And if the regulators find that the bank didn't handle them properly, it will kind of double establish the liability on behalf of the plaintiffs. So the plaintiffs are contending, hey, you mismanaged our money, you held it improperly, and you used it for improper gain. And so the regulatory side may say, these guys are absolutely right. And they might get rid of the board. They might file criminal charges against the board and the managers. Lots of really bad things can happen to the bank if the allegations prove to be accurate. So also the victims who did not receive their money, they'll, I'm sure they'll receive a much higher amount than what they were originally owed. That's right. So not only will they get their actual damages, but they would be entitled under the law to punitive damages for the obvious and overt malfeasance of, of the funds that should have come to them. A little side note for everybody. We were driving around Hampton this past weekend and the Lafitte family, where Russell grew up and where Alec Murdoch grew up, very close. I mean, they were just a few houses apart from each other. Right. I would think that they would have been riding bikes around the neighborhood together. Longtime friends. So let's move on to the boat crash survivors that have filed a claim against the Murdoch estates. Mallory's Beach's mother and two survivors of that crash, Miley Altman and Morgan uh, Doty, have filed more creditor claims. I think it's totaling $65 million against the estates of Maggie and Paul, who were murdered in June. This is where things get really wonky as far as legal stuff goes. Alec is the sole beneficiary of Maggie's estate because he inherited the property before the claims are paid. We'll have to work through all that. And Tinsley filed the six claims less than a week after John Marvin, Alec's brother, filed motions in Hampton County Court to cancel another action called Liz Pendens, that's to prevent the sale of Mazelle and the family's Edisto Beach House. What the heck is that, John? So a Liz Pendens is basically a giant sticky note or highlighter to say this property is under dispute over who owns it and what should happen with it. And so the only people that are eligible to file one are people that have an actual ownership interest in the property. And so you cannot file one if you just say these people owe me money. You can't file one if people say you did me wrong. The only way it would work is if, if the three of us owned a piece of property together and we had a falling out 
and I heard that one of you was about to sell the property, I would go down and file this list pendus to to hold up the sale and to put the world on notice that this title has a, a cloud of ownership over it. So John Marvin's trying to cancel that. Because they're not properly filed. They're trying to keep him from doing anything with it. And he's like, hey, you don't have any you don't have any property interest or ownership interest in this property. You can't do that. You might have a claim against some money that comes in, but you don't have any claim on the land itself. He's saying they that to Tinsley. He's saying that to Tinsley. That's right. Yeah. Okay. So the motions, though, that Tinsley has filed, they're staking their claims to the Moselle property. They are, but improperly so, I believe, under reading of the law in South Carolina. The only way you can state that claim is to let them know that you have an ownership interest, which they do not. They have an interest in equity for tort and in damages. They don't have any claim to be, you know, one of the owners of the property in any way yet. If anybody other than a member of the Murdoch family filed a list pendus, it's not valid. And so if Tinsley's trying to get it removed, I think they'll be unsuccessful. Basically, these guys went down and locked up the property, the creditors. And now John Marvin's coming back and being like, hey, you can't do that. You can you can make a claim against the estate in tort, but you don't have any say or ownership. You can't prevent the sale of this property. Oh, so they could be trying to sell it. Oh, I mean, they'd be crazy not to in this market. That's actually what the attorney for John Marvin, Bill Newsom, said in his statement to the Island Packet. He says, the current real estate market is good for sellers, and it's prudent to sell Moselle now for its highest and best price for the benefit of creditors. And you guys should be happy if we sell it now because we're going to get more money than if we hold off on selling it. Same probably with Edisto. We'll wait and see what happens there. The other little wrinkle is there's still the issue of Buster. (laughs) And so it is possible for Alec to reject his interest in the property, in the estate, and then it would pass down to the next heir. Wait, so you're saying that Alec could say, I do not accept the fact that Maggie willed it to me, I'm passing, and whoever's next in line can have it, it goes to Buster, and in that case, a lot of people would not have as much claim to it if Alec doesn't own it. They'd have no claim, that's exactly right. So that would just be a way to get out of paying people that are owed money. It would be an exercise of a long-held legal principle in the state of South Carolina that heirs have the ability to not accept to reject their inheritance and then it passes to the next generation. Well, why would someone reject an inheritance? Well, it could be they give you uh, a lot of debt. <laughs> you don't yeah. want to accept it. <laughs> yeah. Well, or you could be in a particular tax bracket. Let's say you, you're going to suddenly take on a new property out of state. Well, you might be doing well in life, but not so well in life that you want the extra tax bracket jump or the or the tax payment obligations. And so, whereas your kids or, or a nephew or niece might not have the same, be in that same economic tax bracket yet. It's an estate planning tool 
but there's plenty of times where, or, or the dad's like, you know, I've got eight cars. I don't need a ninth. Right. So I'm just, I'm going to not accept that. And then it goes down to the, the grandson. If Alec could do that, and Alec would just say, ah, I'm not taking either of those properties. Now it's Buster's. Now we got a long lawsuit, different angle coming up. Crazy. Again, not forecasting or putting legal ideas into people's heads, but I, I could see that that is a legal issue that will be raised and litigated at some point in the next year to two years. And well, that would go over like a lead balloon. That'd be outrage over that. It would be outrage, but again, hard cases make bad law. It's pretty clear legal principle to be able to do that in some states. So I had a listener question about the relationship between John Lay and this case. He is one of the co-receivers who is in charge of Alex Money, but he's had cases where he was opposing counsel, and also he was the attorney who represented DNR in the filings by Connor Cook's attorney. It's not a conflict. So Lay has been antagonistic to Murdoch in many cases over the years. And now he has been appointed to be in charge of his estate. And then you couple that with the fact that he has um, DNR connection. So one of the parties in the current facts and, uh, you know, in the current controversy, they've been united in denying liability. So, so he's gone from being a deny liability to being in charge of the guy that he's going to say is fully liable. And so it's a it's a potential conflict, I believe, or or one that will be raised down the line. Period. The other thing that's all a buzz on the old Reddit, and so take that for what it's worth, and uh, also some things that we have had sent to us is the fact that there were seven. I believe I'm getting this right. Seven new LLCs on January 10th under Randy Murdoch, Alex Brothers' name, and. So people are wondering, are they just going to sell off all the timber? Which I didn't even know there was such a thing as a a, a timber deed where you can, one person owns the property, but another person owns the timber and can sell that off. So the big thing, the scuttlebutt, everybody was worried about, will they cut all the stuff down in Moselle and sell it off, get money, but it'll go to Randy, not Alec, and it's a way of skirting the settlements. But... You can explain this, John. Just because Randy's name was on that LLC, he's an attorney. That's right. So a couple things. Anybody can file their own LLC paperwork. Typically, when an attorney or, or a professional does it, their name is listed on it as an organizer or maybe even just something they set up with some other people. And so that's actually maybe one of the most normal things that we've seen in this case. So so it's, it's, it's just Randy doing his job as an attorney and continuing to do business down there. It's, it's the time of year where you would set up a new business to do a one-year timber lease or deed. And all that does is it sells the, the right to harvest the timber that's on a particular piece of property. It doesn't, it doesn't impede the ownership of the property. And it could be that based on some earlier facts where he lent money to buy a tractor and that kind of thing, it may be that they actually are the ones that planted the trees. This isn't a red flag. This is standard property management and the potential buyer of the property who's buying it for the land to maybe turn into a subdivision or something like that. 
would be fine with, with the timber being cut, you know, they're going to have to do that anyway. And there's a few things of note there. First of all, you know, Bamberg, Bland, people like that, they would not allow this to be some unscrupulous thing. And when we were down there this weekend, there's all kinds of land that appears to have had timber sold, like, fr- like relatively fresh throughout all of Hampton in that area. And there's even, what you can see through Moselle is very young trees, I would assume, have been sold off uh, not too long ago. And another thing to think about is if Moselle got rid of all the trees, well, then it's not worth much as a hunting area. Yeah, I mean, it changes the parameters, but you wouldn't cut all the trees. When you see scrubby young pine, five years, that's going to be, you know, two by fours that are going into our houses. It's not unusual to, to rotate property, to rotate where you're cutting and then to replant. And then it's just like a, it's any other crop. It's just happens to take longer to grow. And they could sell timber just to keep up the property, pay mortgage, keep upkeep, that sort of thing. Um, So also I've been chatting with a listener who is actually a 911 uh, dispatcher in Virginia. And she asked me a question about whether 911 calls can be redacted in the state of South Carolina, because in Virginia, if there's an active investigation, you don't have to release the 911 calls, but if you do, they cannot be redacted. Yes. Yeah, so South Carolina has a similar holding where, where it is, the presumption is that it will be released in full, non-redacted. And then South Carolina courts have, from some cases I was reading, have created a couple of narrow exceptions. And so I would be most interested to see what the basis of the redaction was to see if that was in conformity with with the exception sought. Not not just, well, this is a sensitive case and we don't think everybody should hear everything. Well, that's that's not a good enough reason. But if it meets one of the legal reasons, then that would be acceptable. John, thanks again, man. John Snyder, our legal analyst. Thank you, dude. Thank you, guys. Have a great week. You Thank too. You. Bye. Oh, bye. When we come back from a quick break... We're going to talk about a little history of Lafitte's family and the bank. Back in a minute. Hi, Sarah. It's so great to have you, and it was great to ride along with you last weekend. It was a lot of fun. Yes. Sarah has uh, been on the an episode before, too. She knows the history of Hampton. She can rattle it off off the top of her head. Sometimes it's absolutely amazing as we drove around. She's like, this is where so-and-so lived. This is where so-and-so lived. She knows her stuff about Hampton, the history of the Murdoch family. Uh, and today we're zeroing in on uh, the history of, well, what became the Palmetto State Bank. And seeing one thing you wanted to point out is the yeah, location. It really struck me how close the bank is literally right behind the courthouse. <laughs> Yes. So easy to walk over from uh, Alex' law firm over to see his, what we saw was also a childhood friend in Russell Lafitte. And the fact that those two lived just maybe three houses down from each other, something like that when they were growing up? Yes. So that was interesting. So let's find out about how this bank thing played out and how the Lafitte family became the owners of Palmetto State Bank. Well, we're going to talk about three banks, and all three of these banks are within a block of the courthouse. So Hampton County was established as a county in 1878, and the town of Hampton was made the county seat. The courthouse was formed, and the Bank of Hampton was founded in 1891. It was the first bank in town. The parcel of land that 
that it sits on right across from the courthouse was donated. Several of the prominent citizens in town organized that bank. They brought in a French architect named Vincent Fontaine, who was from France, but moved to South Carolina and designed a lot of the buildings in South Carolina. And the construction was completed on the bank in 1892. Um, It was important to uh, get the bank established to secure the town's position as a regional center. You know, we had the railroad and the sawmill and all of these things popping up. And so having places for for workers to go and, and do their banking was really important. Hampton actually, believe it or not, enjoyed statewide prestige as a financial center in the early part of the 20th century because of this bank. In 1905, we were listed as a banking town in a statewide business directory. Sarah, the building you're talking about, that is the building where is currently the museum? It's currently a museum. Yes. So that was the first bank. And the bank generated additional revenue by leasing the upstairs space to lawyers. So they had six attorneys in town at the time. The bank changed hands in the 1920s, but by 1930, with the you know depression and world wars, the, the bank ended up closing and went into receivership. So W.H. Lightsey, and the Lightseys are another big family name that you hear in Hampton, was appointed as a receiver for the bank in 1926. And it ended up being taken over by the Loan Exchange Bank in Hampton. That bank was run by Ralph Bowden, and that was the bank that put that clock right in the middle of Main Street. So that bank was on Main Street, uh, just about a block over from where the original bank was. Ralph Bowden ran that bank and and led it through two world wars. The Great Depression came out on the other side of it just fine. He retired and he sold his interests in that bank to the Lafitte's in 1955. At the time, that was the largest financial transaction that had ever occurred in the county. It was $250,000. The Lafitte's began their banking business in 1932. Tucker Lafitte and his son, Charles Sr. Charles Sr. is the father of Charles Jr., who is the father of Russell Lafitte. So Tucker and his son, Charles Sr., organized the Estill Exchange Depository. Cash depositories were started in South Carolina as a result of the Great Depression. With all of these banks failing, many communities were without any financial institution. So the state authorized the formation of cash depositories so they were able to receive deposits, but they had to keep that cash on hand. So prior to this venture, the Lafitte's had no banking experience at all. Two years later, Tucker Lafitte got the bank charter for the Exchange Bank of Estill. So they had the Exchange Bank. And then in in 1950, they purchased the Carolina Commercial Bank and Monk Lafitte, who was the son of Tucker Lafitte and the brother of uh, Charles Sr., took over the Exchange Bank. And Charles Sr. became the president of Carolina Commercial Bank. Then five years later is when they acquired the Hampton Loan and Exchange Bank from Mr. Bowden. And then in 1970, it was renamed Palmetto State Bank. In the 1980s, they expanded into Bluffton. Bluffton had no bank at the time, and they were experiencing an an economic boom and a lot of building and development, and there was no bank there. So Palmetto State uh, expanded into Bluffton, and then they expanded into Beaufort. 
And then in 2007, they merged Palmetto State, Carolina Commercial, and the Exchange Bank all under a single charter and formed the Palmetto State Bank. It's hard to imagine like families buying banks. It's weird, right? I mean, just, it's, it's, like, I mean we're in Charlotte, so yes. we think of Bank of America. Yeah, and Fargo. And, right. And these are hometown banks. So do most people in Hampton actually bank at Palmetto State Bank? At one time, yes, because there weren't a lot of options. You're looking at you know, the sawmill was there and, and Mr. McClure was here with the sawmill and he left the sawmill and opened a bank in Barnville. Um, and so that there was, you know, that option. But for the most part, there weren't a lot of options for banking. Now we've got Hampton County Bank, which ended up merging into BB&T. Um, so that is a, a very, you know, prominent and old bank there. They certainly have a good business. But the Loan and Exchange Bank can trace, you know, their roots back to the original bank of Hampton. And then, of course, Palmetto State, now that they've you know, bought out those banks, they can connect straight to the very first bank that was in the area. Gotcha. So there's some, you know, there's some prominence that comes to that. You also got to look at the fact that this was a huge family. You know, Tucker Lafitte was married to Lucille Morrison and had six children with her. And Charles Sr. was was in that group. And then she unfortunately passed on. And then he married um, Elizabeth Lucius and had four more children. And, and Monk Lafitte was in that group. Um, he also, you know, he had a son that was a very well-respected doctor in the area. So the family has bankers, but they also have several doctors. So and then Monk's daughter, of course, uh, his daughter and his son were both uh, into banking as well. So he had, you know, Sterling and he had um, Elizabeth and she married Jan Malinowski. And he, in his own right, was a good banker. He was with Wells Fargo. He was in international banking. They lived in Switzerland for a couple of years after they got married. So this wasn't a guy that just got the job because he married the boss's daughter. He knows what he's doing, and he's very well-experienced and well-educated in banking. be interesting to see if they can weather this storm. I mean, you said they, they, made, sure it through they, the, they made it through the Great Depression. Are Russell, they going to make it through they, this? Russell might well, not make it through this. It, it's a very large family, and um, you know, I, I was in high school with Gray, who is Russell's sister, and Gray is a wonderful person, very honest, very good, extremely smart. And she's been with the bank since day one, and um, I'm sure that that she'll, you know, work to fill any any gaps there. And uh, Jan and that whole side of the family, I, I'm sure that they're they're going to pull out of this just fine. And again, we're we're looking at just because one person has, you know, been accused of something that at this point, you know, we don't know how that's going to play out, but it, it can't reflect on everybody around them. There are some really good people in the family. Sarah, thank you very much. We appreciate it. You're welcome. As always. Thanks. Talk to you soon. And I want to point out that we will be putting up some pictures and video from our trip around Hampton up on the Murdoch Podcast Facebook page. Also want to say that uh, it's been reported that Russell Lafitte is cooperating with all the authorities on what went down with him and Alec and deposits and, and, and that sort of thing, which you would expect him to. 
cooperate, and he's, they say he's doing that. Also, I want to do a straighten something out from last episode. Yes. Yeah, so one of our listeners pointed out that I actually said that Hakeem Pinckney's funds went into the fake Forge account, but that was actually prior to Forge being set up. So I got that wrong, and we like it when people keep us straight. Yep. Reach out to us, MurdochPodcast.com and the Murdoch Podcast Facebook page, and we'll talk soon. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. True terrors of horror, bizarre happenings, unexplainable events. On our podcast, Disturbed, Terror Takes Center Stage. Each episode is a journey into the darkest corners of human existence, delving into bone-chilling tales of kidnappings, serial killers, maniacs, and the very essence of your worst nightmares coming to life on this weekly true horror show. Disturbed is not for the faint of heart. It's an exploration of real, unadulterated horror sourced from everyday people. Each episode is a descent into the macabre, where we narrate stories that will leave you on the edge of your seat and crawling in your skin. We navigate the disturbing narratives that lurk in the shadows, offering a raw and unfiltered listen into the most terrifying aspects of the human experience. Enter at your own risk and let the unsettling tales unfold in the haunting realm of Disturbed. And remember, listeners, stay safe out there. 